Welcome to this edition of What's the Score? Let me remind you, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please click the like button wherever you listen to this program. And if you'd like to support this and future programs, I encourage you to become a patron via patreon.com. There'll be details to follow in the middle of the program. We couldn't do the program without our patrons, so thank you. And enjoy today's wonderful podcast. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Now, he's worked in television for over 40 years at the highest level, including shows that he's worked on like uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, The Tonight Show. He even won an Emmy for his work on the telecast of the 2012 Lon- uh, London Olympics. Uh, he's worked on numerous documentaries for Blu-ray releases, including the James Bond films and Cinema Retro. Now, we met as a result of our affection for the James Bond films, uh, on a recent uh, tour of locations in uh, New Orleans, and so I was delighted to not only get to meet him, but it gave me an opportunity to invite him on the program. So I'm delighted to have uh, have him on the program today. Please join me in welcoming uh, Paul Scrabo to the program. Hi, Paul. Hi, Frank. Thanks for this. It's a great opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed meeting you, and I think you have a, a fascinating background, and so I'm really interested in picking your brain a little bit about film scores and hearing some of your selections today. Um, I, I know that you're a listener of the program, so it, it only goes to follow you know where I'm going to start off with, and that is that maybe you can uh, give us an idea. Tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of uh, growing up and you know, where did you grow up and family and you know, the things when you were you know, in your uh, early years, I guess, of your life before you started your career. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, normal childhood. I was uh, uh, was an only child. Uh, both uh, wonderful, you know, wonderful, wonderful parents. Uh, brought up pretty much in in uh, New Jersey, and you know that's that's you know really about it. There isn't much much to say there. I uh, I uh, loved um, uh, growing up. I loved animated cartoons. I I uh, attempted to uh, do animation as a kid, but it's one of those things like like uh, drawing and drawing cartoons that 
you really shouldn't give up on it. Sometimes like, well, I'm not, I'm going to stop doing it for a while. And if you don't do it for a while, it's really tough to pick it up again. So I, I recommend anybody that always has these dreams about drawing or anything artistic, whatever, uh, don't walk away from it. Keep, you know, keep doing it because it'll give you, you know, pleasure down the line. And, uh, and now retired, that's kind of what I'm doing, picking up pieces and digitizing my life, you know, uh, from the analog days of photography and filmmaking. And, <laughs> that, and that's, I, I'll tell you, it's keeping me, I don't mean, it, it is a cliche, but it's also true. I, I don't mean to say like I'm busy because that doesn't really mean anything. I love doing things and I am ridiculously busy. Uh, I don't, uh, there's not this, even retired, there's still not enough time to do the things you really want to do. But that also includes, you know, don't forget personal stuff with your family and friends, of course. Sure. Well, did, did you, um, even through all these years, did you, did you keep drawing by any chance? I mean, just for fun? Uh, for fun, but I, I, I lost some of the um, ability I really would like to get back to, because that was my first my first uh, attraction, my first love was the idea of the magic of drawing cartoons or animating cartoons. And I'll, I'll, get, I'll get back to it eventually, I hope. But uh, it's just, um, it's a skill that you just have to keep, ma keep maintaining, I think. Okay, now, so I'm curious, because again, I think both of us are pretty close in age. So uh, what, were some of your, what were some of your favorite cartoons growing up? Well, I'll, well, I'll tell you my, uh, one of my biggest influences was the work of Charles Schultz. Okay. And the idea of his comedy timing that he would, you know, his average strip was like four panels, four square panels. And many times the third panel was just uh, a beat. Nobody's saying anything. It's just a beat before like the, the final joke or something like that. I would pick up on things like that. I was very impressed by his humor, how his drawing was, you know, he wasn't the greatest artist by any means, the greatest cartoonist, but sure. he delivered and he, you could identify with him. And I think uh, in terms of humor and comedy, which, which I, I, I love pursuing, um, his comedy was just as important to me as film comedy, the comedy of a good comic strip like a, like a, a Charles Schultz uh, that was a that was a major influence on my life, I think. And you know, it, it, I hadn't thought of it, but as you were talking, I was thinking about it. His humor, it still works today. It's not it's not uh, it's not dependent on the time that it was written or something. I mean, a lot of his stuff is still very pertinent and very funny. Oh, absolutely! I I go through. <laughs> I used to collect those books as a kid, those those old signet books and the, the pocket books and stuff, all yeah. the different editions. And occasionally I'll still break them out and just go through them and start laughing. And a lot of it is is um, uh, emotional or, or uh, sentimental, of course, but uh, it does bring back your your childhood. And uh, that's, uh, it's just uh, it's nice to, to revisit it once in a while. Yeah. Now, OK, now. The, the fact that we probably grew up roughly in the same time period, away from humor, I'm kind of curious. I, I, I'm, I'm biased on this. Did you, did you have any kind of affinity for a cartoon like Johnny Quest? 
Oh, of course. Well, that by that time, by the time Johnny Quest uh, had happened, I was a seasoned Hanna Barbera fan. I mean, oh, it was okay, like, yeah. oh, I mean, uh, I, I, um, I actually, of course, years and years later, I actually met Joe Barbera. Oh, wow. And I, I mentioned him. I, I brought up the fact that I remember Rough and Ready and stuff. And he was, you remember that? I mean, I mean, <laughs> the fact that I was impressing him was kind of crazy. But um, yeah, I, I, uh, the the Hanna Barbera series. I understood what their take was. They, they, they specialized in making uh, car animated cartoons for television, which meant it couldn't be as elaborate as motion as they did in the for the MGM years. So sure. uh, their animation was limited. But what they but they made it up, they made it up with their personalities and the voices uh, rather than the visuals. And I, I, I like that. Um, uh, and of course, well, the Flintstones was a big deal. But right. my personal favorites of, of, of their shows was the ones that weren't as successful was the Jetsons and Top Cat. Those were my two oh, favorite yeah. Hanna-Barbera uh, uh, shows. And of course, well, Johnny Quest came later on, I think in the mid-60s or whatever, their first, like, not adult, but it was like, the, the drawings that was more elaborate, more sophisticated as yeah. an Indiana Jones, you know, Doc Savage type of thing going on. And it was very impressed that they would they would do something like that and be uh, successful at it. So, Jeepers, yeah. I, I have not, I haven't thought about Top Cat in years, but I had flooded back with memories about that show, thanks to your mentioning well, of it. That's... Well, uh, and since we're on the, the uh, I'm glad you brought it up because mentioning about movie scores and television scores, the unsung hero of the Hanna-Barbera world was Hoyt Curtin. Without question, this guy did original scores for, for the for the for the for the uh, the primetime Hanna-Barbera shows. And each show he had a different touch. His work for Top Cat is like jazz and blues and swing. It's masterful. And his work for uh, the Jetsons with the uh, the harmonica the organs and all the beeps and the noises uh just gave the identification uh, for those shows i think he was a he was a genius hoyt Curtin, an amazing talent to do to do all that music for those shows i'm i'm gonna have to look him up i mean is any of his any of his music on youtube do you know uh yes a lot of it is also some years ago uh rhino cds put out something called the Hanna-Barbera Picnic Basket. It was like four or five CDs of Hoyt Curtin's music. And you want to talk about going to heaven. This was ridiculous. <laughs> to finally hear this music, the original tracks, you know, without dialogue or a laugh track or whatever. Oh, just uh, just absolutely wonderful. Isn't yeah. it great? We've, we've lived long enough to where that stuff gets released. There's still some more stuff I want released, but hopefully I live long enough to hear it. Uh, well, that's, well, also about... Um, when we met in uh, in, in uh, Louisiana, or whatever, I think we talked briefly that we were told that you know, well, CDs are dead, uh, physical media is dead, everything. Are, are you kidding? No. We're we're getting more CDs, more Blu-rays from these boutique companies now than ever before, and we're getting our wishes come true. I never thought this music would come out. I never, I never thought the the complete version of this movie would come out. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite it's a something. world of abundance right now. Yeah, yeah, the the tape survived. Lo and behold, we didn't realize yeah. it. Well, 
This is a program about film music, so why don't, why don't we dive into one of the selections that you uh, chose to play today that are among your favorites. Um, this is from a film that both you and I probably are very familiar with. I'm talking about the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, written, uh, the score was written by David Arnold. I think this, and per, my personal opinion, Tomorrow Never Dies and Casino Royale were his two best efforts. Um, the, the cue that you chose from Tomorrow Never Dies is Escape from the Hotel, Tell us a little bit about why you like that particular cue. Well, uh, one reason, I guess the basic reason, is that what well, we talked earlier as a, a little pre-interview on, you know, I'm a James Bond fan. How come my, my, my uh, choices aren't loaded with John Barry stuff? And I explained because he's ubiquitous in my life. He's always there. I play John Barry music, James Bond music. We play it all the time. So... It didn't make sense for me to overload it with the choices for this show. So what I did is I picked David Arnold's uh, track here from Tomorrow Never Dies because he brought back John Barry's sound yeah, and also incorporated his techno, his sound as well. So he, he brought his own uh, life into it and also remembered the brassy sound of John Barry and this, the, uh, this escape from the hotel or whatever they, the, 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 the track is, is so perfect because it's just, it's the Bondian motif all the way. And I remember the first time that played in the, in the, when I saw the movie for the first time in the theater, I'm going, this is as good as it gets. It was just, yeah, yeah. This and, is a great, it's pure, it's pure Bond music. Yeah. And, and, and truth be told, the governor, as he used to like to call John Barry, approved. And uh, so, not surprising. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. Again, this is uh, from the film Tomorrow Never Dies. The cue is called Escape from the Hotel, and it's written by composer David Arnold.
Okay, well, um, after your growing up years and those sorts of things, I'm kind of curious. You're, you were interested in drawing and cartoons and those sorts of things, but you kind of took a different path in terms of your career. How, how was it that you uh, you got into television? Um, in the late 70s, mid, later 70s, um, I was uh, I was doing uh, construction work uh, in the city, very very you know, very tough work, and I'm not built as a construction guy, but it was but I, I did okay. Yeah, uh, and uh, it was it was good money, but that wasn't what I wanted, to, you know, to end up always doing. And there was an uh, a one ad in the. This is when when there were newspapers and there were one ads in newspapers. Yeah. And uh, I remember those days not that long ago. And yeah. it was it was they were looking for a uh, a video tape playback operator. And I said, what is you know for for duplication of in a duplicating plant in Leone, New Jersey, which wasn't that far from where I lived. I knew nothing about the technical world of television, but I grabbed a couple of magazines that were that were uh, that were technical magazines on, on on television and videotape. I picked up a couple of buzzwords, and I I did every trick in the book um, to do a resume back then in the old analog days. I, I used a different colored paper. I didn't fold the paper. I put. I sent it as an eight by ten envelope. Uh, I, I kept my my resume, you know, brief and short as it should be. Right. And um, I pretty much mentioned in in the in the uh, in the resume that you know I'm willing to learn. I think the future isn't video, videotape, and um, I, I was out of a hundred applicants, I was picked. Wow. And I, that to me, when I got that phone call, uh, the young lady said, "We'd like you to join us if you possibly could." Um, that. I'll never, ever forget that because it was one of those situations whereby I wanted something. I did the best I could to get it and to attain it. I did it the right way. And, uh, it, it you know, you, you can accomplish it. And it was, it was still a miracle to me. And I had uh, five wonderful years, ended up as a technical operations supervisor. And during those years, working with clients and whatever, I... I had to learn back then just about every piece of video recording equipment that was out there. And there were dozens, one inch, two inch, quarter inch, half inch, every uh, ones that ran at this speed, one that ran at that speed, right. all different and working with clients and trying to fix their equipment. And, and so it, I learned a lot uh, from that. Uh, and then after, I think, five and a half years, uh, NBC New York was looking uh, for every every year or so for they look for people to work vacation relief. In other words, you're only going to work a couple of months in the summer. If we like you, maybe we'll call you again. Or if we we lose people, maybe we'll make you permanent. So I I I left left uh, where I used to work, and I took the job at NBC, and everything worked out fine. I met. Um, I met my future wife there, George Ann Muller. Uh, she's the lighting director, and everything just fell into into place there. And uh, I, I spent uh, many many years there. You know, to work at Thirty Rock, it's not a bad place to go to every day. You know, sure. it's pretty pretty neat. And um, I, I now retired. I most of all uh, I miss the people. 
you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm still in touch with many of them. And that well, was, uh, it, it sounds like, I mean, from what you described, that was, that was kind of a risky move on your part, I guess, wasn't it? When I look back, yes, yeah, what? I could be right back to ground zero again. Why did I leave, you know, a job <laughs> that's like 10 minutes away? But once again, in my life, and I think it's everybody's life in a way, but there's a handful of times when something tells you, do this, do this one, make this move right now. Just, it's, do it. You should, you should do it. Something's, and more times than not, it ends up usually always being ultimately the correct judgment, the correct move. Yeah. And, um, I was just, I was just hoping that I would become permanent. And I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of not more than a day ahead. I'm thinking, I just, I like this job. I hope I can learn things, whatever. And, uh, and so uh, that's what I had a wonderful career there and they were very, very good to me and met some good people and good professional people. And it taught me what helps now in my retirement uh, years, if I do projects on my own or with other people, it taught me patience and discipline mm. and and discipline and patience is I would is more important than any skill or talent because that comes later. That, that you get if you have the discipline to watch other people work and then you get your own way and ask questions. Uh, the best people always will help you. They love helping you. They love coming in. Well, let me try this. Let me help you with this. It, it's The more professional people you hang out with, those are the people that will drop everything to to answer your question. Huh. Uh, and so, so, so that was a of, good experience. Yeah. So what kind of roles did you have then at NBC? Because I'm assuming that you progressed in your career to bigger and better things what were some of the things that you did there well when uh i was in the videotape department naturally because i came from knowing videotape right and uh, there were two divisions at one point you, you either do production which is you know doing some editing or recording or slow-mo whatever and there's also on air which is basically playing back commercial carts playing back commercials, playing back shows, loading them up, queuing them, fast forwarding, whatever. Remember, it was all physical uh, in, in those days. So you did just about whatever they assigned you to do. And ultimately, you can get into, uh, oh, they like you on this show. They like you. Can you fill in? You know, do you know what you're doing? No. Okay, solid. You're in because you're going to learn. That's what happens. I, no, I have no idea, but I'll just fake it somehow and, and, and right. get through it. And In other so, words, you know, can, can you fog a mirror? Yeah. Okay, you're hired. Yeah. <laughs> Solid. You're <laughs> in. And uh, so that yeah that that's what happened. So it was a it was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful time. A lot of a lot of challenges. A lot of pressure because especially when you're live or when you're doing Saturday Night Live or the Olympics and uh, Saturday Night Live. I was the live guy to play in the to play in the commercial parodies to play in the overlays, the intros, oh, wow. the outros, the establishing shots. And you're working with the AD and you're working with the technical director and, and it is a team and you respect, you respect that, uh, that, that teamwork uh, yeah. uh, tremendously. And so uh, I did a little bit of everything. I mean, I was not, uh, I edited uh, frequently. I was not a major avid editor or anything like that, although I did do it occasionally. Uh, that was not my forte uh, all the time. It was mostly 
uh, repair editing. I did edit some segments for SNL and The Tonight Show. Tonight Show was a great experience. That's the one with, with, uh, when Jimmy Fallon got into the, the show. And I also worked with Conan O'Brien. Oh, okay. You know, great, you know, great times, great, uh, great people. And um, it, was, it was good. And it helped me, you know, get more discipline and learn, and learn stuff on my own. Okay. So it was, that was a very good time. Wow, that's great. That's great. Um, one of the cues that you chose is, uh, is from a, a score in a film that's a favorite of mine. And I'm talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And, of course, the uh, composer is the uh, the maestro, John Williams. The coup you chose was, uh, I think it's, what is it, uh, Roy and uh, Jillian on the Road. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to uh, choose that to, to play today. Well, I think because, um, first of all, it's a... It's a it's it, it's one of my all-time favorite movies, even though the movie is a mess at times. And I mean that in a, I mean, it, it, it has plots, it has holes you could drive a truck through, <laughs> but the whole thing is based on emotion, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. What I like about the movie, and it wasn't me that mentioned it at first, but I like the fact that there are no bad guys in the movie. Huh. Everybody's everybody's in on it at the end. I mean, there aren't any bad forces going after anybody. They're all good guys. The army, the marines, everybody, the scientists—they're all in on the same thing at the end. And I really, uh, I really enjoyed that that feeling uh, the, uh, with the movie. I never but, thought of that perspective. That's yeah, interesting. I, I think it is interesting. And the, one of the reasons I picked this this short cue is to me this is the close encounters. What I call the searching theme or Roy's theme or whatever because the first when I first saw the movie in its first 70 millimeter run the movie ended with a repeat of uh, this searching theme closing the closing the movie yeah now in all the showing since they end with wish when you wish upon a star and I I prefer the early music with how it original film originally ended uh, with you know with with the, with the bouncy theme that uh, that's that's on the that's featured on the track. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Sometimes the director's cut isn't necessarily an improvement, even though you expect it to be. Yeah. You know? I mean, the, I mean, this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to bring back when you wish upon a star and the dreams of Roy Neary. I totally get it, but I preferred uh, um, the more original Close Encounters, say, action theme uh, toward uh, toward the end. Okay, well let's uh, let's have a listen for ourselves. This again is from the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and it's written by composer John Williams. Thank you. 
Okay, so you're uh, you're working in uh, in television, very engaged in your career and those sorts of things. I'm kind of curious, when was it that uh, the light bulb went off and all of a sudden you said, you know, I kind of like this film music thing. I'm, I'm something something uh, uh, sparked in you, I guess, or whatever. Uh, maybe the first film score you heard that you connected with. Just kind of talk to me a little bit about how you got into listening to, to film music and becoming a fan. Uh, I think when I, as long as far back as I can remember, I, I remember one of the early records that my that I remember my father having was the soundtrack to the Five Pennies. Huh. <laughs> I'm going, what is this? And, and and it was like decades or whatever later that oh, there's the music from that album I grew up with, the Five yeah. Pennies with Danny Kaye and Louis Armstrong or whatever. Uh, also. Uh, uh, my father was a fan of, say, Peter Gunn and Mr. Lucky and these Blake Edwards uh, television shows. And, of course, they're known for having great Henry Mancini music. Yeah. So I grew up with, with Henry Mancini. I, you know, his name was on albums that we had. And then, oh, my God, there's a movie. Uh, one of my early movie memories was this great color film, uh, Hatari. Oh, music by Henry Mancini. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> now it's a movie guy. And... Um, it, 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 that was one of my early movie memories with music and also a delightful composer who's not really known as well but he should called lee harline or something uh no i'm uh, not familiar yeah he did music a lot he did a fantastic job with a movie called the wonderful world of the brothers Grimm. what a great huh. score and he also did a wonderful theme for one of my early movie memories the honeymoon machine it had this bouncy theme song so those are my early memories. And of course, then comes James Bond and all this stuff. And I started to collect uh, soundtracks. I just, and, and a lot, as a lot of people did, just a big fan. And certainly John Barry was influential in my, my collecting and my appreciation. And, uh, you know, it just it just grew from there. It's, it's still a, a miracle to me how they can, you know, the, the saying is they were there when the page was blank like a writer i mean how do you come up with it i mean that's still how do you come up with that theme that suits what's what's that complements the image on the screen i don't yeah i mean have you yeah. ever had the privilege to uh to watch a film without the score and and how flat it is without music yes a few times yes isn't it amazing what a difference it makes yeah it's 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 not a complete film yet it's not uh did, did you feel, I mean, my listeners will know, I ask this question of a lot of people, and, and it's biographical, the reason why I ask it. Did you ever kind of feel like a little bit of a, an outsider or, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit weird because I like this orchestral music from films and TV and everybody else is listening to the Beatles or the Elton John or whoever. Mm -hmm. and, but I'm into this. Did you ever? Was that ever kind of a weird feeling for you? That why doesn't everybody else like this? Uh, so, uh, I think I was rescued from that feeling because as I got a little older, I met people that also liked the music. And then, as I got really older, as as an as an adult, I became friends with just regular people, guys who just loved that music, and they knew exactly what I was talking about. And it wasn't yeah. unusual to have, oh, I have that. Did you get that album yet? It's really terrific, you know. And uh, uh, I, but I remember that one of the uh, the the kingpin of uh, of soundtrack records had to be United Artists. They put out every soundtrack, and I think 
the reason for that was there was a stipulation for independent filmmakers that if you you made a film that was going to be distributed by United Artists, it was part of the contract that you had to supply information for a soundtrack album so huh. United Artists could put it out. And it wasn't as much to sell the music as much to sell the movie. You know, you know yeah. go to EJ Corvettes or Two Guys or a department store, and you see the gatefold album just in the front there. Oh, yeah, I want to see that next week. You know, I want to see that movie. So United Artists was a big uh, big proponent of, of original soundtracks. And, uh, yeah, that was, that huh. was, those, those are real, those are really good times. Yeah, yeah. You uh, you chose another uh, cue from a, a John Williams score uh, a movie, and I and I, be, I keep I've seen references to it recently, and I keep saying I need to watch this again. It's been you know I don't want to say how long it's been since I've seen it. But right. I want to see it again, and I but I do remember the music making an impact on it. The film I'm talking about is The Towering Inferno, and you wanted to play the main theme from that again, written by uh, uh, John Williams. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to include that amongst your favorites. I think uh, everybody agrees that the opening sequence of the Towering Inferno with the helicopter going through the city right. and with John Williams' exhilarating music is one of the greatest open main title sequences in movie history, in my opinion. It is just so exhilarating, gets that big movie off to the most tremendous, right bouncing off your feet start. <laughs> and it's just so perfect, and John Williams' music is so perfect for for those sequences, the you know the flying sequence through through San Francisco, that I wanted to pick that because once again it's not Jaws, it's not Star Wars, but it's just as valid. This is you know uh, it, it is this is great, and it's interesting even in that circumstance, that case during the opening credits of the Towering Inferno. John Williams' name is not mentioned in the main credits. Really? It's only, it's only mentioned at the end, pretty early in the end credits. Isn't Holy that wild? Smokes, I didn't realize that. He's hit John Williams' name is with, with that great music going on to kick off the towering inferno. You know, music by John Williams, not there. <laughs> wow. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. I mean, it's mentioned, he has, a, has his own. You know his own title, separate title card at the end, oh, yeah, but, but uh, still. And, and one of the the jokes about it about the main title is that he made sure that whenever Irwin Allen's name was featured in the credits, I think it's featured in the main titles. I think it's featured maybe two or three times. Yeah. He does a symbol crash like that, like Irwin Allen, and it's like a joke, you know. It's uh, so next. No. So when you whenever you hear the crash. The 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 uh, the, uh, the symbol crash when you listen to the main title. That's because Erwin Allen's name just appeared on the screen. I think that's called kissing ass. I would I would suspect <laughs> so. Nosing. Yeah. But uh, there, there's no but there's no way to hear the main title from the towering and not just I just got to get up and exercise or walk around. This is this is going to be great. <laughs> I great. hope I hope the listeners feel the same way. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's let's uh, have a listen to this for ourselves. Again, this is from the film Tiring Inferno. It's the main title sequence. And once again, it's written by composer John Williams.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. I noted that you've uh, worked on a lot of documentaries and commentary tracks for uh, Blu-rays and those sorts of things. I'm, I'm kind of curious. Uh, how did that opportunity present itself to you? And, and are there any, I don't know, maybe there aren't, but maybe are there any interesting stories to share from some of your work on those commentary tracks? Uh, well, I think getting, well, that was my extracurricular activity work like that. Uh, began in the early 90s uh, when I worked on a documentary for a movie called It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Okay. And the thrill, they they hired me because I knew a lot about the film and about the, you know, the making of the movie. And uh, they thought, hey, this is this is a bargain to get this guy. He can help with the questions, and he can also photograph. <laughs> how, can, how can you lose? So, um, I want a total pleasure. So, that was the beginning of doing something, you know, for public consumption that wasn't NBC. It was like a, a extra extra activity, uh, and then uh, that led into uh, working with uh, Lee Pfeiffer, John Cork, and Mark Cerulli on being one of a large team. Uh, my wife and I, uh, camera and lighting work to shoot some of the interviews for those James Bond documentaries. Okay. Now I mentioned those guys were the main producers and directors. I, I was, we were a part of a, of a, a large group of people. So they had a lot of, he had a, they had more people than us working on the stuff, but sure. we were very thrilled and happy to uh, be part of it. And then again, being fans of the Bond films, I mean, this isn't work. I mean, come on, it's crazy. So, uh, and then, um, I forget how we got it. I think that um, Lee Pfeiffer of Cinema Retro uh, had made some connections and some people requested, hey, Lee, do you, you guys can, uh, we can use some, some, some 
commentary tracks for this company and this this movie and that and one thing led to another and we do a, we do several a year and we, we keep doing them and it's um it's work because you have to edit it when you're done and and you know make sure your voice is okay and keep the pace up and and mix and so so uh, we record it i edit it push it up push the file up so it's a whole maintain a whole uh, little production uh, effort on uh, on our part uh, and we, we still do that to this day and uh, we're happy that there are still blu-rays out there and they still are commentary tracks and special features do you um are you i, I know you weren't connected to this but i'm just curious if you're familiar with it did, did you ever hear about the uh the commentary tracks i guess that were done for like a dr no and from us for love where there were some things that were said, I think, in particular by Terrence Young and or maybe some others that apparently the, the you know, Cubby and Harry weren't too happy with some of the things he was saying. And they they ended up having to cut that stuff out, even though it had already been released. But they held. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I remember getting those. It was like, get get these get these criterions right away. Get the laser. Why? Because they right. they pull them off the shelf. And I actually did literally the next day. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't find any of them. So I did get them. I didn't see hear anything really objectionable. But then again, I don't know the actual reason. I know John Cork and uh, those guys know the reasons. I've never pursued it because I've heard different versions of why. One thing was uh, they forgot to sign a contract or somebody objected to this. I don't personally know the full story, but I know the full story is out there. And a gentleman like John or whoever would probably give the, the straighter answer on what exactly happened because I, I really uh, I don't know. Do, do, do you ever find yourself having to edit out comments sometimes because maybe eh, maybe we shouldn't include well, this? Well, I did something on my own. One thing, you mentioned James Bond. When we did the um, commentary tracks for uh, Goldfinger and Thunderball in the beginning, remember back then in the mid-90s when we're just doing these for the Laserdisc, you know, nobody knew what the hell. I mean, how do you do a commentary? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Now they got it down to a science. They, oh, yeah. they, they, get, they get this done, done while they're making the movie. I mean, so well, <laughs> they figured it all out. But back then, and so uh, John and Lee and Mark, they let me do some of the editing for the commentary uh, commentary tracks they're a great believer in you know let people do their work and diverse and you know separate he'll do this and i'll do this and so i had a bunch of material to work with including a cassette uh that somebody provided of an interview with terence young and this is gold because he's talking a little bit about uh from oh, yeah. love and dr no and, uh, and thunderball and for some reason in the very very beginning in the thunderball track I wanted, to, I wanted to start off with, you know, here's here's a clip from Terrence Young. And he mentioned that briefly, and of course I did for Mushroom Love, and Thunderball, which I hated, uh, came ah. in uh, to 1965. And for some reason I said, you know something, I'm, I don't want to be a cheater or a liar, but because we're starting off this commentary track with the first thing is Terrence Young, I just, I took out, hate it but he's saying he realized oh, the underwater stuff was a pain that's why he it was a frustrating film sometimes to work with because of the underwater stuff and speeding up the film and whatever so uh i'm a very good editor and i was able to take out you know thunderbolt which i hated was the most successful of the bond <laughs> films i did so that's what that was a, a judgment call on my part 
I don't know if it was a big deal either way, but uh, yeah, so I, I did that. But uh, no, I didn't. I haven't really had situations actually whereby, ah, we can't use that, you know, um, not really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, going back to the music, you, you, you've chosen something I'm not familiar with, so I'm excited to hear this. But it also happens to be. If people ask me to list my favorite composers, of course, my listeners aren't surprised I list John Barry first. But right. my second choice is Jerry Goldsmith. And you, you, this is interesting. You chose the cue is called Intermission, which mm-hmm. back in the day, in yep. particular for, for longer movies, there used to be an intermission in the middle of the film, and, and but they'd keep it rolling and there'd be music in the background for it. So uh, I kind of miss those days. It would be nice if they brought that back. The, the, one of the reasons I, I chose this track, of course, I wanted to choose something of, of Jerry Goldsmith, is that In Harm's Way, I believe, was originally intended to have an intermission. I don't believe it ever played with an intermission, but Jerry oh, wow. Goldsmith composed an intermission cue, and that's what you're hearing. So this theme, which is really John Wayne's theme uh, uh, for In Harm's Way, uh, this track is not you don't hear this actual track in the movie anywhere but you hear variations of that theme but it's called intermission theme because originally it was made uh for the intermission cue and when they put the album out they just kind of left it in and so uh, i think it's a wonderful example of goldsmith's uh, war era like he did three war films in a row he did in harm's way the blue max the sand pebbles all three scores are different, and all are amazing. Yeah. So that was my, in other words, this represents, you know, Goldsmith's war scores, I guess. And we're not huh. even talking about Patton or Torah, Torah, Torah. That's what I was just so, thinking about, yeah. Yeah. Wow, well, let's have a listen for ourselves. That's that's fascinating. Now, I miss the days of when there used to be a, a not only an intermission, but a, what do you call it, a prologue, I guess, or a, a prelude. Overture, An overture, yeah. yeah, at the beginning of yeah. the movie, and it's you know those those were the days. I I, I kind of missed that, but anyway, they were. Let's uh, let's have a listen to this. This is again from the film In Harm's Way. It's a uh, was written originally for the intermission in the middle of the film, and it's written by composer Jerry Goldsmith.
you know, since you're uh, obviously a fan and have followed Phil music for years, I, I'm kind of curious. I don't want I don't want to bias my question, so I'm I'm going to try to ask this as objectively as I can. What um, what are your thoughts on the state of film music present day? Is it do you, do you like it? Is it you know is it better? Is it worse? Is it you know, you know film music is film music? Just kind of share with me your thoughts on that. I think. Just quickly, I think I agree with what I hear some composers, I think even David Arnold said it, and I think even John Barry said it. I think what has happened is they pump, the complaint is they pump up the sound effects so much now that I can't, I can't really get into the music a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't, or it's like this droning thing. It's, it's. It's it's not mixed the same way it was in what we call, I guess, the old days. So I don't like that change too much. I think I think that's a criticism uh, I, I may I may have, uh, you know, the music that you were brought up with, just like the rock groups were brought up with your time comes where you don't follow it as much uh, as you used to. But there are some people like. Um, Oh, Mark Shaman, who is a genius with musicals. And um, there's one, I, I forget some other people, but there are, there, there are people that are talented as ever that are out there that are doing uh, amazing, uh, amazing work. Michael Giacchino, I wish he'd do a James Bond movie. Oh, my God, he'd kill it. Huh. It would be absolutely amazing. His music for The Incredibles is, well, everything he touches is great. So, uh, yeah, there are, there's... Um, there's, you know, talented people more than ever out there. I've brought it up before, um, so my listeners will know this, but it, it's kind of interesting how a lot of composers, and I, I guess directors are instructing them to do this, feel like there has to be almost wall-to-wall music. And yet I can remember, and, 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 and of course, I, unfortunately, I just am more familiar with John Barry's approach to scoring and those sorts of things. There were... There were several times on, on, on many films where there would be an action sequence and there wouldn't be any music. And, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing the thinking was, well, let the action speak for itself. It doesn't need any extra oomph from the, from the score. And, but yet these days, like what you're saying, not only do they have sound effects, but you've got to have this glaring music as well. Wall-to-wall music. And it just it doesn't work for me for some reason. It just it loses its impact in my view. What do, what do you think? Well, uh, it goes back to the the legend about uh, everybody knows the theme from Patton. Oh my God, what a great great movie music! The theme from Patton. There's less than thirty minutes of music in that three hour movie. <laughs> yeah. Th- that's th- there's there's your answer. I mean, but yet it's effective how it was used. So um, there just as much music as much as you need. You know, I guess that's yeah, a judgment and, call. And yet, I guess you probably couldn't get away with that these days. Um, your another one of your selections. I have to say, I am not in the in the slightest familiar with at all, and it takes us back to composer John Williams once again. Let me make sure I can pronounce this right. The the film is called. Is it Fizz Willie? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, uh, Fitz Fitzwillie. It Fitz was Willie. a Christmas Fitz Willie, Yes. Uh, tell with tell Dick me a little Van bit Dyke. about why you wanted to include that. Well, uh, this is part of 
because well certainly I wanted something from Johnny Williams because he was he was he was a genius before he was John Williams if oh, you know yeah. what I mean he would my thing but I picked this one because it's him just being a, his workmanship it was a working you know I'm, I I got this assignment I have this assignment for 20th Century Fox or United Artists or whatever but this I consider part of his happy or, or uh, friendly thieves trilogy. In other words, he did three movies, comedies about thieves. One was How to Steal a Million. The other one was Penelope with Natalie Wood. And this one, Fitzwillie, which is my favorite. Uh, it's a very innocent, very lighthearted film. Uh, Barbara Feldon always considered it a, a Disney movie, but it's not by Disney. But he think, she always thinks this was a Disney movie because it plays like a Disney film. I just think this is such a delightful classical piece that makes you interested in learning about classical music because he's doing a classical approach to the theme of this butler inspecting the house, inspecting the mansion, and he's dressed to the nines in his outfit, whatever, and this glorious, you know, specific music is playing, and... Um, I just think it's it's great. It's a good example of how versatile uh, John Williams is. All right. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This, again, is uh, from the film called Fitzwillie, and, and it's uh, the main title. It's written by composer John Williams. Thank you. 
You mentioned it briefly uh, at the beginning, but maybe it's worth exploring a little bit more, uh, given the fact that now you've retired, but you still manage to stay very busy. But I am kind of curious, what is it, if anything, that you miss about your, your, your work, your, your real job, your consistent full-time employment at NBC? Is there, is there anything that you kind of miss about that? Well, I think it's any technical job. I think if you walk away from it for a number of years, if I was to walk into the building now, I wouldn't probably recognize it. There would probably wouldn't be a place for me. In other words, you know, uh, so I think everything had probably changed so much that I would say, oh, maybe it's good I went out when I did. So you want to go out with those memories. I miss the teamwork. I miss the discipline. I miss being part of a team for a show or a production or whatever. And I miss the friends that I made. I st- I'm still in touch with many of them. Uh, so, yes, I'm very, I was lucky to get in when I did, and I think lucky to get out when I did. I was very, very, I'm very, very fortunate to have a, a, a you know, career, to survive a, a career like that. And, uh, um, oh, go yeah. ahead, I'm sorry. No, that's it. Well, I'm curious because you must have worked at a very interesting time. And the reason why I say that is that I'm guessing the technology was just exploding and it was changing, you know, not daily, but certainly almost monthly, there'd be some kind of a new and improved technology that you would have to learn. Was that a challenge? Or, well, first it, always all, a challenge. did that happen and was it a challenge? Happened, happened, uh, happened. That's all it was. I mean, it happened <laughs> all, all the time. Thing to understand uh, is that some things like, say, basic lighting. Yes. I mean, that the technique really doesn't change. You know, key backfill, key backfill, whatever, over this, that. Uh, that has, that doesn't, that's, that remains the same. Yes, lighting, lighting, lighting kits change possibly, but there's a lot of basic stuff that doesn't really change. Overall, it's the same, the same, the same nomenclature, the same words you use. Video completely changed all the time from analog to digital to tape to a different format, different type of editing from uh, linear editing, non-linear editing. It is a constant change and you have to flip-flop to go back and forward and, uh, and, to, and to pick up the pieces and try to learn as, as new, uh, new techniques come. So that's what kept it interesting for me. But also, Gary, gets very frustrating because, oh no, I, I got this down and now I have to learn this. You get to a point saying, "Okay, I'm done now. I, can't, I, think, I think I think I think I've had it." But uh, I but I was fortunate to see those breathtaking inventions, those changes happen, and to see it happen, you know, before the public sort. Oh, we're in, we're getting into HGTV now. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, home and garden TV. No, <laughs> I know my wife's favorite channel. Uh, yeah. You know, we're getting into you know high definition television and stereo and uh, Dolby and all these things and um yeah it uh and uh you know tapeless tapeless editing and tapeless recording uh yeah yes it constantly constantly changed all the time all the time yeah you um you mentioned this film a little bit earlier the cue i was going to play right now i take it it's a, a particularly a favorite of yours the film i'm talking about which is which is crazy to say the least. The film is called. I'm probably going to leave out a mad. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Uh, you wanted to play the main titles from that, written by a uh, composer Ernest Gold. 
Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites today. Well, I think, well, first, I, it, I, it's, a, it's one of my all-time favorite films. And interestingly, it's, it, it's a lot of people's favorite all-time film. There's just something about it that keeps magical and fresh and special. There's never been a film like it before or since. It's totally different in the way it's directed, written. It's just an, a one-of-a-kind uh, one film. And for a big, big comedy, Ernest Gold could have really gone over the top and overloaded with goofy cues and crazy cues to try to make something funnier. And he doesn't. His music just fits what's going on perfectly, uh, when there has to be music, when there shouldn't be music. Just absolutely uh, a brilliant score. And why I picked this main title theme, it goes back to what you were talking about, showmanship and intermissions and overtures. This movie was so special that uh, after the overture, they figured that... Uh, a, uh, a curtain, a theater curtain for those 70 millimeter road shows took about eight to 10 seconds to open fully. So what Ernest Gold does in the very beginning for the first 10 seconds of this, he's, 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 he's getting the, 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 uh, the, the, the music up to speed. It hasn't quite started. He's getting this music started. It takes about 10 seconds to get the theme going. Uh -huh. And th those 10 seconds were used with a, so the curtain could open to a blank screen. And then when the music actually really starts, it's, you know, Stanley Kramer presents in Cinerama, whatever. It, it's all showmanship. And when you accompany this music with the work of Saul Bass doing the animated titles, you're just going, this is going to be a great film. Even with the credit, this is just going to be a good time watching this movie. You know, so, it, uh, it's interesting, too, that a lot of times films have a history of that when they've got this quote all-star cast they've got you know a cast of dozens of stars or lots of people a lot of times the film's not that great but this this was different it was great yeah well it's all about the script and the you know the performance yes it, it could have been a curiosity item and it just oh remember that mess of a film was what, what was he thinking making that crazy film with a million comedians but no it's just a great it's just a great it ended up to be a great legendary movie that keeps playing and playing and playing all these years later to full houses when it's in 70 millimeter or digital, wherever it's playing now. So, wow. But I think it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful theme uh, to accompany the, the animation uh, that's going on on screen, all the colors that you see, all the names exploding, whatever. It's just a perfect opening title to a pretty perfect comedy. So yeah. um, uh, that's why I, uh, I, I chose that. Terrific. Well, let's have a listen to ourselves. This, again, the main title uh, music for the film It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, and it's written by composer Ernest Gold. <laughs> Thank you. 
I don't know if you, um, well, I mean, I know you have a social media presence, but I don't know if you like to kind of like promote that or have people connect with you or to promote your work and those sorts of things. If indeed that's true, how do people find you and how do they uh, stay in touch and uh, learn about what you've got going on? Well, right now, so many of my, my social media things are, I haven't updated or is a mess or I've lost connection with the people that are running them. So all I can tell you right now, I can tell you, well, I am on Facebook, as in Paul Scrabo. I think there may be some people may get a kick out of my YouTube channel called Excited Artists, uh, which some of the old Super 8 movies that I did or some features that I worked on, whatever, I put uh, some selections on on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you make you know people may get a laugh out of that here and there. There's I also have a YouTube channel called Paul Scrabo, but that's usually for personal stuff like you know family family uh, family home movies and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, but um, I am on uh, Facebook, so yeah, be a, be a pleasure, sure. And you uh, and you you know you're you're still pretty active. You got any uh, projects in the pipeline you can tell us about? Or? Yeah, well, I'm there is a chance uh, that. Um, a movie that uh, that we did some years ago may get distribution. If it's about 20 years old, but some people are interested in it. It did make its money back doing in private uh, private distribution. We did pretty good, got good reviews. It's called Dr. Hara's Erotic House of Idiots. <laughs> it's that's a real movie, uh, and uh, with an all-star horror movie B movie cast, and. Um, it's out there. It's tough to to get it. it. It's available on Amazon, but you have to go directly to the correct link. And I'm not sure how to do that because they screw up the title all the time, and it's hard to find. But uh, anybody interested, I can certainly point them point them toward it. Uh, so I'm working on uh, redefining the film and re-editing because it may go out into it may go to two B TV or something. I really really not sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the commentary tracks is working on, and there's. A bunch of things that that I'm kind of working on with friends, uh, and we'll see what happens. The good news is now retired, uh, the pressure's kind of off, so it's <laughs> like I can wait. To, well, let me wait till it's a little better, and I'll get it out there. But uh, yeah, it's it's um, with the equipment out there now. I mean, with, with with for nothing with an iPhone and just with Facebook and YouTube, you can just create things and have a you know just have a wonderful time just in a, without breaking the bank, as you've said. So uh, yeah, there's no reason not not to keep busy and, and enjoy yourself while doing it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, Paul, I I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed having this chat. I uh, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Frank, it's been great to it was great like I said to meet you uh, a few months ago and. I've listened to some of the shows and uh, just it was a great idea, wonderful show. And I, I, I thank you so much for letting me be a guest. I mean, uh, I'm humbled. It's it's great. And I, I love the fact that I, that people share their personal favorites and sometimes introduce people to you. Maybe I'll get that album. I'm not too familiar yeah. with that. So uh, it's a great idea, and it's a perfect, great idea for a podcast. And I'll, I'll have to check out your Patreon uh, situation there. Cause yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be grateful for that. In fact, yeah. since you mention it, yes, uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank all our patrons for helping to support the program. Uh, your, your support is appreciated and uh, certainly noticed. Uh, and, of course, all our listeners, for that matter, for listening to the program today. I hope you've enjoyed our visit with Paul and uh, have uh, maybe 
learned a few things and maybe uh, heard a few uh, scores that you might want to check out here later in the future. So again, my thanks to our guest, Paul, and to all our listeners and patrons for listening to the program. And with that, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this, that my name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?